Welcome to the Star Love Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Beck, the Oracle in New Orleans, founder of Inner Makeup Astrology. To learn more about what I do, visit innermakeup.net. And today we have Bruce Schofield on. And I learned about Bruce through uh, Anthony Lewis, the astrologer. I was looking through some of his texts. And, you know, Bruce was cited in, uh, especially with Horary Astrology, Plain and Simple, which is a great book. And actually helpful to me with some of the house demarcations, uh, specifically the 11th house for people who know more about astrology can also be clients as along with friends. So I was asking Tony, I'm like, hey, you know, how about Bruce? And he's like, oh, yeah, Bruce knows his stuff. <laughs> so, um, you know, and Bruce, um, a little bit about him lives. You still live in Western Mass, right? Massachusetts. Yeah, it's really cold right now. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a little chilly here. We're in New Orleans, but nothing. I'm sure nothing like uh, Western Mass. Um, and you, you know, emigrated from New Jersey in 1989. His yep. writings span several subjects, including trails and hiking, astrology, history, and science. After early interests in paleontology and astronomy, he began studying astrology in 1967. In 1980, he began a private practice from which he earned a living as an astrological consultant for many years. In the early 1980s, his first hiking and astrology books were published, and he also passed astrological certification tests from both the American Federation of Astrologers and the National Council for Geocosmic Research. During the 1990s, he was the National Education Director for NCGR. He's on the faculty of Kepler College and often speaks at astrology conferences and meetings and is a frequent writer for the Mountain Astrologer magazine and many others as well. Uh, and uniquely, his interest in Mesoamerican astrology has a major online presence, uh, and it's oneread.com, and I want to talk about the name of that, which is interesting and fun. Bruce has several other interests, you know, which we talked about, and also uh, you're a musician too, so we'll talk about that. Um, holds a BA in history from Rutgers, MA in social sciences from Montclair University, and a PhD from the University of Massachusetts, where you teach. So, hello, Bruce. How's it going? I did teach there. I'm, I'm uh, retired. Oh, you're retired. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Doesn't seem like you're retired. It seems like you still have a lot going on. <laughs> no, I'm old and beat up. Oh, you? Oh, okay. All right. Well, I didn't have that impression. I had. I'm okay. I I don't perceive that as true, but yeah, fair enough. Okay, so let's get started. How did your early interest, as I was reading before, in paleontology and astronomy lead to your pursuing astrology? Well, I I don't know that paleontology led to it, but it was uh, an early interest in dinosaurs as a very young boy. Mm -hmm. uh, that and my father taking me to the American Museum of Natural History in New York regularly. Uh, that kind of got me interested in science, at least, you know, geology and biology, paleontology being the historical side of that. But I was also interested in astronomy and um, had a telescope and built a, an equatorial mount. I knew I learned quite a bit about astronomy uh, when I was young. Mm, wonderful. So what occupied your time in other either you know all that stuff or you know any other magisteria before you became an astrologer well i uh when i got out of high school i i went right into rutgers um it was you know i lived in the next town and it was very affordable 
and I really didn't know what to do. I studied geology, so I signed up as a geology major and uh, took a few courses there. But at the same time, I uh, was playing in a rock and roll band, mm-hmm. and it started getting very popular. Mm. And uh, I guess about the year before, I had been in another band, and we were on TV a few times, and I mm. played with uh, Love and Spoonful and the, the Left Bank and Screaming Jay Hawkins backed him up one time. And wow. you know, so I had this early experience of playing in, uh, you know, rock and roll showbiz. And so when I was at Rutgers trying to be a science major, this was becoming more and more of a distraction. And I, uh, you know, I, I was in a band called The Ruins and we did some recordings and it just got to be too much and I dropped out. Mm. I stayed out for four years, and it was in that four-year period where I kind of bounced around in the the, the world of the hippies mm. and, and the rock and roll players and uh, pot smokers, and <laughs> I got you know I discovered astrology in that. Interesting. So, slightly backing up, what what instruments do you play? Do you sing? Well, in high school, I played uh, brass instruments, mostly trumpet, okay. uh, but. I switched to electric bass uh, um, in my last few years of high school, and then um, and that's what I played early on in rock band space. And then I then I switched to guitar, which is what I play now. I, play, I still play bass. Oh, interesting. You know, and I actually I used to be a trumpet player myself, classically trained, but I, I went quite far on that. So that's interesting. Um, but okay, so is there? You know, th- this is why I love these interviews. They open up things. What type of music did you love at that point? When I was in high school? Yeah. Dixieland. Oh, you lo- oh okay. <laughs> yeah, and it, I, it, it, I played a cornet, and I played... Actually, I learned slide trombone. I had one of those, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so I was uh, I was into Dixieland music. It was kind of popular at the time, and I was into Al Hurt, and, um, you know, what, what's the guy, the, the English guy, um, uh, Midnight in Moscow, Kenny Ball. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, this is so funny because I used to have, when I was a kid, one of the Al Hurt mouthpieces, which had kind of a sort of a, um, gosh, it was like a cup kind of um, on the outer rim of it. And it was, I, that was like one of my first mouthpieces that I had. And, and this is so funny because I am I live in New Orleans and you're talking Dixieland. So that's, yeah. this yeah, is I, like. <laughs> yeah, I remember, uh, you know, listen, really liking Dixieland music and mm-hmm. uh, spend a lot of time with it i used uh the mouthpiece i had i think was a box 7c that's pretty sure yeah. yeah we all start on on that pretty I, much i seem to remember that but i haven't played horn for a very long time i still have a cornet here oh uh, you know that that's interesting did you ever get into the old uh cornet solos like the very you know technically oriented you know you'd have to do sort of these very uh elaborate tonguing you know triple tonguing and all that or you pretty much were doing mainly dixieland jazz well i i i studied uh with the arbins book right yes yeah <laughs> yeah so i probably did a lot of you know double tonguing and whatever. yeah <laughs> and i see but my uncle was a really good trumpet player played in um, a polka band and mm. german type stuff and and a regular regular dance band i, I guess mm-hmm. when he was in the, the war he played mm. in the navy band that's what he mm. was in. so okay. he got me interested and we used to go when we, there was a family event he would pull out the arbins book and we would do the duets in it mm-hmm. so you that's interesting so you 
you know, I love the personal stories. You went from Dixieland, but then you started to get more into rock. Did, what do you think precipitated that? Well, there was um, there were some like crossover hits, and I had a, I was my friend and I we had a band, I guess four or five people in it, and um, called the Shepherds, and we we did a lot of uh, instrumental stuff. Uh, and I think what was really big at the time was um, Herb Albert's Tijuana Brass. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, we could play, you know, you know, Taste the Honey and all that stuff and and put on shows. And, um, uh, you know, we, we got around with that. that oh, was, my God. Was singing, you know, just all instrumental. You know, that's so great. I used to have all a lot of those albums and it was like this kind of thing. Oh, my God. How fun is this? See, I didn't. This is why we do these interviews, because there's, you know, all the stuff comes out that, you know, we don't know. It's so fun. OK, but when did you make the jump to becoming a full time consulting astrologer? Well, that, that took a, a bit of time. I mean, okay. as I said, I was out of college for four years, mm-hmm. basically being a hippie and hitchhiking <laughs> in San Francisco. And uh, it was during that time that it became uh, I became very aware that all my friends were born around the same day. I had like two, three girlfriends in a row that were born on October 10th. And my best friend in high school was October 9th. And my best friend in college was October 11th. And one of the girlfriends had some old astrology books. Mm -hmm. And I started looking at them. And picking up a little bit. And then one, on one of my trips out to uh, San Francisco, I hitchhiked out. And I was I was in Sausalito hanging around in somebody's houseboat there that had a bunch of astrology books. And I kind of realized, it dawned on me that this was not a lot of nonsense. I was told, right. you know, when I was young that it was just, uh, you know, uh, you know, nonsense. But I, you know, I started looking at the books and I became intrigued and I calculated a uh, horoscope. Um, the math was pretty easy. Based, you know, I, I was taking calculus at Rutgers at the time. Mm-hmm. So math was nothing. And I put it together and tried a few progressions that I got from an Alan Leo book. Mm. And lo and behold, they worked. And I was, you know, that hooked me when I saw that this this was real. and This was not a fake. Mm hmm. Do you, you know, this is interesting. Do you what were you doing the progressions on your own chart or for somebody else's chart? I was doing it for me. For you. OK. This is, it's so interesting because I, I don't want to get too far into this too soon in the interview, but we might as well go. Do you think that, you know what, maybe we'll leave that for later. What was happening at that moment for you? Or, well, let me ask you, what do you think was happening at that moment for you when you cast that chart and everything lined up oh i don't know i was the the whole period there neptune was moving square to my ascendant and saturn Mm -hmm. so there was a lot of Mm -hmm. breakdown going going Mm -hmm. on with my Mm -hmm. old world i i I dropped out so far that a lot of my friends in high school i've never reconnected with i mean they just Mm -hmm. you know they couldn't Mm -hmm. do well, that's interesting, too, because Neptune, you mean just on a basic level, but water and, you know, the dissolution of things. Yeah. Um, I, I This leads me to my next question, and we'll roll down through the other questions. And I, I missed a lecture. I believe you gave at the Astrological Society of Connecticut because I'd moved down here to New Orleans. But what is astrology? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, I have a definition. Okay, you know, it's funny because I, ha- I do get people on the show and I, you know, it's, I'm still working through that. What, what just is, what did I, what do I do? What, and I, that's why I'm glad to have you on the show because you, you have a lot of 
I think, interesting, unique ideas that need to be heard. But what, what is your definition? Help me out. <laughs> well, it's um, a subject that is concerned with mapping and timing methodologies uh, for um, self-organizing systems. So a self-organizing oh. system is something like uh, a body or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like a tornado mm -hmm. or a, uh, you know, the stock market. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a system that mm -hmm. you can't analyze by the parts. It's greater than the sum of the parts. Mm -hmm. And uh, consciousness, um, a cell. Mm -hmm. you know, so, you know, this is interesting. So I have a couple things sitting right by me, I don't know if it's still in print, but the you you really you get into uh, in your book the timing of events, electional astrology, and I think this was written in what? <laughs> Dude, written in oh. 1980 it took a few years to publish, but I wrote that in about 80. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, this okay. You're right. Copyright 1985. But but you know in the book because I've I've looked through it and and used some of the stuff myself. You, you go pretty far into using. Um, electional astrology and timing, it, and it, you say in the book it's not for everybody, but if you really want to, it can be this true organizing discipline as a principle for human beings in their lives. Could you could you talk a little bit about that? Because that's pretty, that's that's a you know pretty pretty profound step for a lot of people to take as an organizing principle in their lives. Could you talk a little bit about that? How you've experienced that? Yeah. Well, first of all, you have to be a really good observer. Mm -hmm. And you know, maybe my early experiences with studying nature helped me, but um, you have to be able to, you know, s you know, detach yourself from your feelings mm. and, and really be able to analyze what is truly happening to you. And not a lot of people do that very well, including a lot of astrologers, but mm. I seem to be able to do it. Uh, mm. And I basically have made my life into a study. Mm. You know, I study myself and. Uh, I can move back and forth between the subjective and the objective. Mm. Wow. So that, that really philosophically gets us right into the old subject object, doesn't it? <laughs> you well, know, you... it does, but it's, but I'm saying that it's a skill set. Okay. Okay. So it's a skill set. So how much, how, you know, you say, okay, you have to detach yourself emotionally. That's reason. But can we ever truly, you know, detach ourselves from emotion? I mean, I think of, um, there's that great book, Descartes' Error by Antonio Damasio, and it talks about we can't totally divorce reason from the passions. So would you agree that, or maybe disagree, that some way we're always involved with our observations, you know, subjectively, that we can't totally divorce ourselves from it? Or do you say, hey, we, we can actually have a huge measure of objectivity? Well, I don't think there are sharp distinctions, but, but okay. I, I think that you can be fairly objective. I, I've, I catch myself periodically mm -hmm. being very influenced by how I feel. You know, a good example would be in politics. Mm -hmm. you know, it, it can cloud, you know, you feel so strongly about one thing or another, it can cloud your judgment. Mm -hmm. But over time, you can learn. And that's mm -hmm. what my life has been about, is learning how to step out of things and, uh, and watch what's going on mm. if, before you start making judgments. So that kind, of, that kind of understanding is very helpful in electional astrology. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a question I have. Um, so I, I just had a client come and, you know, one of the themes came up. So I was using perfected signs and, you know, later this year, 
her her Gemini is getting perfected and it's going to be um, it sits on her 11th house and she also has her part of fortune there. And I was looking at the chart and my her part of fortune sits right between my north node and my moon. So and then also my natal Mars sits on her ascendant. So for me, those are very that's a very powerful intertwining with her. And I, I think I was hopefully able in the session to give her sort of this emotional, um, you know, hey, get out with some friends because she she sometimes gets isolated. Um, not totally, but that's sort of karmically where she's going in the transiting north node is going to be there. So that's very interesting to me. I you know, it's. Um, you know, again, it's sort of somehow spiritually being involved with the people who come to you. Do you find that at all? Or, you know, the, the phenomena or the, um, you know, the, um, the people who might come to you as, a, you know, a, a, as, you know, over the years as a consultant or um, just that there is this entwining of our consciousness with external phenomena. Could you talk, talk about that a little bit or do you have an opinion on well, that? I mean, I, certainly there, you know, there's in relationship astrology, you have connections to people of very degrees and types and and that's a, a a big part of my thinking you know like i know mm -hmm. how i relate to people and what the connections are and mm -hmm. the same thing happens with clients mm -hmm. you know over the years you form stronger attachments to some you know certain clients uh, than others mm -hmm. and in, in my case i have kind of uh, you know it, it actually selects for your client health you know mm -hmm. Right, right. This is, I know, it's, it's, it took me a while to figure that out because I think when I was first starting, you know, uh, consulting for clients, I was like, you know what, I just want to be like an invisible priest or I want to be more like a psychoanalyst who sits off to the side and has nothing to do with it. But I, I found out later there was no way to avoid, like if a certain client came to me and they were prompted to come to me, that there was going to most of the time be some sort of, well, a lot of the time there's some sort of connection there uh, between my natal chart and their natal chart. Okay. Anyways. Um, so what type, what, what types of astrology, cause you, you move, you've moved to some different types and we'll get into that, but what types of astrology were you practicing in your early years as an astrologer? Well, I basically learned uh, from, Alan Leo's books. I had um, the progressed horoscope and calculating the horoscope, and uh, I think one of his delineation books, and also from Ronald Davidson uh, and Charles Carter, mm. and so, you know English guys. And mm -hmm. then I, then I got into Dane Rudyard, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, so I, I've I've always been thinking kind of philosophically about the subject, mm. particularly with Dane Rudyard. And, uh, you know, whatever I could pick up. I mean, I, you know, you go to the bookstore and you find some ideas there, some books. I I was interested in ancient astrology pretty early. I mm. had a Ptolemy from way back. Mm -hmm. Right. And we're going to get into that a little bit. And it, it's it's interesting because, you know, I have the your electional book. But you, at some point you were you became really, I think, heartened that there were all these ancient texts coming out and they were being translated. So what, what was your experience, you know, especially, you know, back in the day, maybe there weren't quite as many texts available. But then even, you know, through people like yourself publishing, you know, I'm like looking at the um, I don't even know if it's I don't think a ton. It came up the other day and I mean, I use it, but like the Via Combusta or some of these really old school things that, um, you know, you know, fell by the wayside, but now they're coming back. 
So well, what, you can what, see that that was around. I mean, there were a lot of things that uh, you know in in classical astrology that were available to me in the '60s and the '70s. Okay. Uh, you know, um, I had a copy of Lily. Um, oh, okay. You know, where it was that was actually kind of an abbreviation of it, but uh, you know, um, there were references to you know things like the via combust i always knew about it you mm-hmm. know it's that's to me that's you know something that's been around i always thought about it mm-hmm. i tried testing it and seeing if there you know what it was to it. that's and that's the thing you, you talk about that a little bit so what but to me that i mean correct me if i'm wrong but i don't i don't think i mean when did you have lily i mean that seemed like i i guess like a lot of people at that point didn't have lily well access- maybe but there's uh, Zadikiel, Zadikiel, whatever his name is. You know, there were all these English astrologers that used angel names, you know, okay. and Raphael, you know. And um, so, you know, I, w- I would look at these and, and get ideas. Um, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm trying to think where, yeah. I mean, I, I in the 60s and 70s, I had Ptolemy. I had... Mm-hmm. Um, Dorotheus. I mm. had uh, Naugabauer's book on astrology, which talked about Valens. Mm-hmm. Uh, somewhere in the 70s, I guess, uh, uh, Firmicus came out. Mm-hmm. There was translation came out. Mm-hmm. And, and then there was Lily's stuff. And, uh, I, you know, almost, you know, everything was in that, you know, mm-hmm. in one form or another. And then, right. it just, and then it became more complicated. Then you got, you know, a lot more. Uh, uh, detail coming out when the, mm-hmm. the uh, hindsight translation started. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's, I think I was alluding to. So, wow. So you're pretty, you know, on it from the get go, it seems like. Um, it's pretty amazing. Um, you know, it's funny, you know, Dorotheus, I was, um, I've been playing around with one of his techniques, which is very simple. It's like if, if the moon trines uh, your natal sun or conjuncts your natal sun, it's an opportune moment to start something, um, which for me is quite fortunate in one sense, because my son is in Virgo. So when it trines the moon in Taurus, it's quite a beautiful thing. But that, you know, just that technique seems to be working for me. But yeah, you know, testing these things out and there's so many techniques. Yeah, that, that was a question I had. Are, are there any techniques that come to your mind that you're like, wow, this really just works. I've got it in my back pocket. <laughs> I'm a, no, no, I'm serious. Like, cause it's, yeah. there are, especially nowadays, as you say, there's so many, um, you know, there's so many techniques. I mean, it's just like, it's endless now, but I mean, you're like, wow, you know, that, that's just been my, um, you know, my old jacket. I just keep the old leather jacket. I keep going back to. Yeah. Well, there, there, there were a lot of, uh, classical and traditional techniques that I, I, you know, I, I still use and I was interested in, I, um, Bob Zoller and I used to hang around a lot together. We did a lot of hiking and camping. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, uh, he was pretty knowledgeable of, uh, you know, classical astrology, certainly mm-hmm. Renaissance, because he studied Bonatti. Mm. You know, uh, so he was, a, you know, he was a, a guy that I had um, a lot of contact with, particularly mm-hmm. in the 80s, I guess. It was mostly. Mm. But, mm-hmm. but, but even earlier, I got involved with Uranian astrology. I got involved that- with Uranian and. I, probably the late uh, early 70s, I guess, early 70s. And that was actually the next question, because, you, you know, I have your book here. You do get into Uranian astrology. Could you, you know, for 
maybe people who don't know what that is, could you explain it a bit and then say tell a little bit about what your experience was with it and maybe what it has still been to the present day? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's different schools of astrology. You know, there's uh, Hindu astrology that they now call Vedic. And that is, you know, it's a it's a body of knowledge. It's a way of organizing astrological information. And then there's Hellenistic and classical astrology, which is popular. And then there's kind of modern astrology, mm-hmm. which is, you know, kind of divorced itself from some of the classical notions and concentrated more on psychological interpretations. Mm-hmm. Sure. And then there's, then there's Uranian, which in Germany is called the Hamburg School. It was started by. Uh, a guy named Alfred Vitto was born around mm-hmm. the same time and day and not the same day, but within a, a week or so of Einstein. He was he was really a pretty brilliant guy, came up with this way of, uh, uh, you know, putting together a chart based on the, the symmetry between points. And my friend Gary Christen has suggested, you know, proposed uh, that the whole system be called symmetrical astrology. Mm-hmm. So I actually have a, an online course on, at Kepler called Symmetry in Astrology, and I kind of bring it all together. But but Uranian astrology was what it was called when I started. Mm-hmm. And uh, what it does is it works with um, uh, planetary pictures, you know, which a simple one would be a midpoint with a planet at the midpoint. And uh, works with uh, so, uh, there are some hypothetical planets that you could use, but you don't necessarily need them. And the, the idea was, uh, you know, very original uh, in many ways, although there were ancient connections. You know, symmetry is uh, found right. in, like, right. say, the part of fortune. Right. You know, because there's an axis. If you take, you know, the, you know the, the part of fortune is derived from the sun, the ascendant, and the moon, depending mm-hmm. on whether it's a day or night birth. But there's a symmetric, there's an axis that it, um, creates a symmetry between those four points. Mm-hmm. The three that exist and the one that's generated. And in a way, what Alfred Vitta did was build on that until he got a whole system out of it and uh, found these combinations and did interpretations with them. And then he added eight hypothetical planets. Mm-hmm. So you could say Uranian astrology is the only really, uh, in addition to modern astrology, the only other modern uh, format of doing astrology. The other ones are are classical or ancient or Hindu, which is old. So, you know, this is interesting. So this was in part why I wanted to get you on. But so, you you know, a lot of myself included, you know, not necessarily versed in all of the different traditions. I mean, a little bit as a lay person, some familiarity with it. But what... I hate to even ask it. Do you find that there's one that you prefer over the other? Well, I guess we'll get into Mesoamerican astrology, but let, let's just, what what has been your experience with Hindu or now, as you say, called Vedic astrology? What what was your um, how has your experience with that system been? Well, I, I, I learned it uh, early on, or at least a bit of it uh, before it became kind of a fad. And uh, I saw it as an interesting, uh, you know, sort I looked at it as kind of a you know, astrological archaeology. Mm. It, it, it goes back, you know, centuries. It was clearly influenced by the Greeks. Right. Alexander went into India and brought some ideas there. Um, it has some some elements to it that, are, you know, have shades of these uh, Hellenistic uh, methodologies, uh, you know, planets that rule long periods of time. Mm-hmm. 
Time Lords, and, mm-hmm. and it's got, it's got a few unique things like the dashes where you translate space into time and so on. I, I was interested in it, but I never, uh, you know, uh, practiced it per se. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You know, that's interesting. The thing that I am most fascinated by is you thought of it as almost like an archaeological excavation that... Yeah. Wow. So, you know, let's, oh, wow. So that's, that's very interesting. Um, did, uh, you know, it's, so again, somewhat of a lay person here, but from what I've read, essentially pre the Western influence into, uh, you know, Hindu or Vedic astrology, it was, they used more just like sort of some of the solstice points, but then it was much more ritualistic. And then the nakshatras, so it seems to archaeologically, like, you know, you can take it archaeologically, but at least historically and spiritually, it goes back to much more of a divinatory place than would be what we would consider horoscopic or modern astrology. Did you, did you, how did you connect with that, if at all, sort of the pre-roots of astrology through Hindu astrology? Well, you know, if you go back real early in India to, you know, when the Vedas were put together, you had some kind of like a lunar astrology going on. Right. There. It wasn't horoscopic. It was only after the Greeks, you know, uh, penetrated into India and brought, you know, there was a trade was going back and forth in, mm-hmm. in ideas, you know, mm-hmm. past there. So then early in the, um, I don't know, I forgot the years off, uh, offhand, but, you know, 300, 400 AD, that's, that's about when you're starting to get a real horoscopic Hindu astrology. Mm-hmm. This is interesting. So the thing that I find fascinating is, you know, again, you have this familiarity with all these traditions, but correct me if I'm wrong, right now you're really focused on Mesoamerican astrology, right? No, not really. No, okay. Mesoamerican astrology was also another archaeological interest. Mm -hmm. You know, to me, if you're going to really understand what astrology is, which is my question, that's my my life question, you know, what is astrology? So, you know, a good way to learn about it is to see what other cultures did with it. Mm. So, you know, I learned a little bit about Chinese, a little bit about, um, you know, uh, Hindu. And and then I found Mesoamerican the most interesting because it was kind of untouched by the Mm. West. Right. And um, I had a a lifting accident in uh, the mid-70s, and I had a uh, back operation, spinal fusion, and laminectomy. I was in the hospital for a couple of weeks, and I read, um, um, you know, the discovering conquest of Mexico, Bernal mm. uh, de Castillo, uh, Diaz. I, I think that's his name. But it just blew me away. I didn't realize that these these people had this whole astrology thing going on that was really different. Mm. And then I got. Jacques Soustel's book, uh, Daily Life of the Aztecs, that had a whole chapter in it, and I was hooked after that. Mm. So I went down there and, you know, dug up what I could dig up, go to, went to ruins and read on the subject and saw that it was kind of a, a proto, a pre-horoscopic astrology, like a proto-astrology. Mm. And it's unfortunate that it was kind of nipped in the bud, you know, by the Spanish uh, friars. Some of it survived in a, a simpler form and still does uh, in Guatemala and parts of Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's interesting. You really, you know, put your money where your mouth was. You, you went down 
you know, and really sort of unearthed some stuff. What, what was that like? Could you tell, you know, a little bit about what that experience was like going down and, you know, well, actually, yeah, you know, I, I met people there and just going to the ruins and, you know, um, talking to people. And um, I was friends with uh, Luis Lasur, who was uh, started the Mexican chapter of NCGR down there. Uh, he's no longer with us, but uh, his mother was a professor of Aztec culture at the University of Mexico. Mm. And I, would, I talked to her quite a bit. Um I was just interested in, in how they approached the, uh, you know, the, the, pro the, the problem of how do you relate the cycles of the sky to uh, human life. And it was mostly a kind of a collective thing, but there was a big personal side to it. Mm. Um, you know, there was um, the big distinction is that they tended to use blocks of time mm. as, as containing um, uh, symbolic significance rather mm. than space. Western mm. astrology is very spatial. Mm -hmm. uh, Mesoamerican astrology is more temporal, and so is Chinese to some extent. And there's an argument that I've made that, uh, you know, there may have been these pre-Columbian you know, contacts between China and Mexico, like wow. way back. Wow. So, and so it goes both ways, you know. Right, wow. So that, okay, so then we get into time versus space or, it, you know, at least from the context of modern astrology. But what are the implications of that if we, you know, for conceiving of astrology as kind of these huge blocks of time? It almost seems like human beings aren't even that important at all, like our individual identities. Well, I, I think they are. It's just that it's, you know, you're in astrology, you're developing a way to, um, assess the um, connections between mm. the larger system that we live in, which is mm. the system and the systems that we, that are around us, which mm -hmm. uh, for people is the body, the mind and the, you know, basically the body and, and the, the mind and out of the mind emerges the identity, the personality. Mm. Mm. And then there's a collective, you know, th that we have groups of people, you know, that is a kind of, uh, a self-organizing system itself, uh, very intangible. But, you know, we have things like the stock market to say that, to show that there really is something to it. Mm. You know, politics well, as well. Wow. So, okay, let's break this down a little bit. So would you say that, because there's so much emphasis in Western culture on the self, the identity, the ego, but it's, you know, what, it seems to be what you're saying with, um, Mesoamerican or Chinese astrology, that it has much more to do with the identity emerging out of these collective natural forces. Would that be an accurate way to, you know, um, reiterate what you're saying? Yeah, I think that that's also true of Western astrology, too. If you look at Babylonian astrology, okay. it's primarily a collective astrology. It right. only became personalized in the fourth or fifth century BC. Right, right. Wow. Which do you think there's a um, a um, a Jungian parallel here? This idea of the collective unconscious, and then um, you know all that stuff. Um. Yeah, I guess uh, I'm not I'm not sure. Uh, yeah. You know, there are. I, I I think mostly about self-organizing systems, mm. and you know I think about how the um, collective minds of a group actually 
produces something else. Mm. You know, that, what? you know, that's yeah, right. What, you know, well, like I, I, you know, I talked about the stock market or, mm-hmm. or the, the behaviors of a nation mm. or the behaviors of, uh, you know, a, a group, you know, at a, at a concert, you know, that mm. there's, there's a, a tendency in nature for, you know, th- this, these collective behaviors mm-hmm. to develop into something that has its own, uh, that, that, that is its own self-organizing system. Mm-hmm. As, you know, simply, you know, we could point to, on a simple level, we can point to, say, the behavior of large groups of animals, mm-hmm. like herd, you know, like of bison or, you know, uh, you know, like a, you know, 10,000 starlings flying in the sky and moving in a, in a very organized fashion. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's, that's studied by scientists. And, uh, you know, how it's done is complicated. I mean, there's 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 signaling that goes on. Mm. Wow. What I'm saying and what astrology seems to be measuring is something that's even on a more refined level than that. And it's it's not well known. There are a couple academic writers, you know, a few writers that will talk about it. Uh, But it's hard to put your finger on it at at the at present. Reductionist mechanistic science has not been able to deal with consciousness and it's not been able to deal with the origin of life. Mm. So, you know, if if that's the case, we have a long way to go. Yes. <laughs> wow. Um, oh, wow. This I guess we I have one. I want to sort of move away from this, uh, although that we could go on a lot about this. Um, but do you think there are um, there's a valid Freudian interpretation here that the idea that we organize ourselves supposedly in rational society and then that is the cause of mental malaise that because we take ourselves out of nature and I'm not advocating we just go and, you know, live in nature without society. But you know, could you draw an analog between, you know, what we've, I see, I don't even think we've divorced ourselves from nature because I think it's all part of nature, but how we have to live in societies in a certain way that is very unnatural. And then that causes problems in some sense. Could you try to clarify what I'm saying? That's our, 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 you know, our, uh, you know, uh, fundamental belief system since uh you know the 17th century is is you know uh focused around the uh you know, the concepts of reductionist and mechanistic science and that's that nature is dead and and i also have to add religion mm. in here as well because mm-hmm. when science first science as we know it first formed in the early 17th century it was successful because it defined what it was doing as giving uh, uh, credit to God that they mm-hmm. were basically studying the book of nature, mm. you know, which God created. And um, but humans were separate from mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. You know, humans are a special case. We have some divinity in us, and yet you know we're also part of nature. So this is the the worldview that a lot of people are still operating in, mm-hmm. and it's it's uh, it's anti nature. It's uh, you know, nature is perceived as dead. Uh, it's ex- um, nature can be used. It's it's perfectly compatible with capitalism. So, you know, you have no qualms about cutting down trees in order to, you know, 
do what you want to do or dig holes in the ground or pollute the oceans. Um, that's how this is all happening to us. And yes, you know, it, Freudian in a sense, but I think it's bigger than Freud. It's the, the fundamental belief system that came out of the 17th century. Uh, you can call it an ideology, you can call it a, a worldview or whatever, is anti-nature. And yet it has produced this amazing civilization that we live in. Mm. So if you regard nature as dead and you can fool around with it and do whatever you want, you can build all sorts of things. But you're going to pay a price for it. And that's what we're doing now. Mm. You know, this is because I'm very interested in literature and art. I mean, that's in a way what I spend the majority of my time doing. But there was this wonderful book I read recently, not as popular at this moment, but surfacing by Margaret Atwood. And she deals with issues of death and nature and leaving the city and going back out into the forest to try to find her father, who, you know, I interpret as her, Margaret Atwood's father was actually in the Canadian Forestry Department. So she was trying to reconnect with her through the protagonist with her father in some way. But it does deal with this issue of how much death do you have to consume to get to natural life. And it's not it's not necessarily um, this, you know, statement one way or another. But I, I for people listening, I would if we're that would be a great literary way to explore some of these issues. OK, so let, so we, we talked about Ptolemy before, and that's where we get most of our modern astrology from. But one thing that you're delving into is his thoughts on you know natural astrology as far as relating to weather patterns so you know how 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 did you get involved with that and why do you think you know we should i think you say we really should move in a big way to looking into this well yeah i you know i basically did my uh uh phd thesis on this um you know the title of it was uh, a history and test of planetary weather forecasting so I started with Ptolemy and, and even before that, looked at all these writers on astrometeorology. Um, and I was very familiar with John Goad, who I actually wrote a paper on when I was in uh, graduate school for the master's degree, you know, you know, a couple decades, I guess, be, before that or so. But if you look at the, you know, the astrology, astrometeorology uses essentially the same techniques as natal astrology is, mm. you know, right? And yet you predict weather. So I had always been dabbling with it. I had, um, you know, Zane's book on weather forecasting and so on. But I, I, as I got deeper and deeper into it, I realized that, you know, Kepler was into it and Tycho Brahe and um, uh, John Goat in particular actually tried to test it out. So I devised some, ex, you know, a, a hypothesis that, you know, uh, was going to test out whether this stuff worked. And I started with some data sets from uh, Harvard Forest, like a six, uh, no, I think it was a 38 year uh, data set of daily temperatures. And I compared them to Sun Saturn aspects, mm. sextile, square, trine, opposition, and other ones. And I found a fairly strong signal with the Sun Saturn opposition. And then I took mm. that further and got into deeper and deeper, longer and longer data sets and found a couple things that, you know, when the Sun-Saturn conjunction uh, opposition occurs at a full moon or a new moon, the effect is really strong. Mm. And um, a few other things, the declination, you know, when they occur, mm. equinoxes and so and so, they're going to have similar declination. 
Mm. That's very strong as well. And I published one paper on it was in correlation. And I have another paper I've been working on for a few years. So I got to finish it up that I'm going to try to get published in a um, uh, meteorological journal. Mm. Wow. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's, yeah. it's a project. You know, I mean, there's there's some uh, statistical tests and, you know, lots of data and, I mean, hours and hours and hours on, you know, Excel, you know, moving data. Right. Well, that would be that would be my question, you know, again, <laughs> quite a lay person. But what what type of statistical significance are you seeing with some of these tests you've been running? Well, pretty good. But the problem is, is that when you start, you know, um, pulling out, like, for example, if you're going to test only Sun Saturn oppositions that occur within say uh five degrees of the equinoxes and your and your data set is 225 years which is about as long as you're going to get yeah you you wind up having a, a sample size of about 10. Mm. now you know the, the critics will jump on you right away and say well that's nothing that's only 10 cases well there is no way to get any more than that right yeah that's true you can't it's funny you can't you kind of in a way, you almost can't test it. <laughs> like if we don't, if there's not, you know, that would, because we, that would be pretty cool if we could go back like billions of years, uh, you know, then we could, right? <laughs> if we had, you know, the ability, if there were no weathered, well, I don't know, how far back can you go? Because some cultures did keep pretty detailed weather records, right? Well, you, you have to have instrumental records. You have to have, right. you know, you can't do reductionist mechanistic science without l units. Right. One thing or another. And that's the big problem with astrology. How do you put units on it? Right. Well, I did. In this case, I used temperature and I got units. Mm -hmm. The longest databases in the world on this are from England and uh, Europe. And they go back like about 225, 230 years, something like that. Now, mm -hmm. That's it. You can't get them before that. They had the thermometer was invented in the 17th century, but it was it was sloppy. People didn't agree on it. Mm -hmm. Um it took a long time before you were at, before somebody was actually taking regular thermometer readings and there was a, an agreed upon standard. Mm. Wow. So this has pretty profound implications because it says, is this what you would say? Like natal horoscopes actually in a very profound way relate to natural astrology that were intertwined as systems with nature. Yeah. I mean, you wow. know, if you're going to use the same technique to analyze weather as you're going to use to w analyze a person, what that says to me is that this is a, you know, astrology is a set of techniques to measure in various ways, including time, you know, what self-organizing systems are doing. Mm -hmm. and okay, weather, so, yeah. so weather is a self-organizing system. Right. So I, I have a very practical question. So I live here in New Orleans, you know, and look, <laughs> we know what happened with Hurricane Katrina, but what, if I'm sitting here is, you know, there ain't too much, surprisingly, there ain't too much astrology happening here. I'm one of the only people, what would you say, hey, Dan, you know, go check out some of these transits for New Orleans to check out some of the weather patterns. What, how would you say I should go about doing that? Well, you know, what's, what's really characteristic of uh, New Orleans weather, except heat and humidity. Anything else? Uh, we're, yes, uh, yeah, we're 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 below sea level. <laughs> yeah, well, you got some big storms, hurricanes, but they're gonna yeah. they're gonna affect the whole you know region there. Um, you you know, there's I don't I don't think you have really wide temperature swings there either. Right, you know, right. You know, 
So you have to find something that stands out a little bit and then check that with the planets. Mm. You know, what well, I'm doing in yeah. New England works perfectly in New England because the temperature swings here are ridiculous. Right, right. You know, we have been, I mean, not to the extent of, you know, say up north, but there are temperature swings here. And then we do get flash storms quite a bit. And they, they really show up in a very perilous way because just from a lot of the infrastructural issues. So it's, you know, it's something, of course, I think about a lot um, anyways. Okay, so... Oh, you need wow. to know, you need to understand your local weather. And in, in the case of New England, there is a, a general pattern that changes by the seasons, but because we have a large landmass to the north and northwest of us, Canada, right. that's, that's cold, you get these cold air masses forming. Mm-hmm. And then, then they, they eventually drift down. A lot of them hit New England, you know, straight ahead, you know. Mm-hmm. But, and and what, what I'm finding is that that will occur when the sun is opposite Saturn. And my, my, one of my research questions is, well, what's the, what's the, you know, what's the connection? And although there isn't a um, much, you know, of a gravitational effect from Saturn on Earth's atmosphere, there is some. And what I think happens, and, and again, one of the reasons why it happens more um, in a more focused way at the equinoxes is that you get this gravitational tug on the Earth's atmosphere, and it's a, like a tidal effect, and it pulls, pulls at the equator flattens at the poles and pushes cold air masses south. So what you would have to do in New Orleans is better understand your local weather and, and you know, where the storm systems are coming from most of the time. They, they will change by the seasons to some extent, maybe not as dramatically as up here in the north. Mm-hmm. But, uh, mm-hmm. That's what you would do. And then, then you would start looking at your astrology. Mm. Wow. But you say the main thing, though, is the sun opposite Saturn. For for what is that's what I studied. I mm-hmm. also found a correlation between Sun and Jupiter and, and uh, precipitation, mm. and also and and uh, with heat and Mars, a weak one. Um, mm. I have a couple of my papers online on uh, academia.edu. Yes, could you could you give where we could find that stuff to so people uh, can uh, academia.edu has some papers. I have some articles on naturalastrology.com, mm-hmm. and I have uh, Mesoamerican stuff at oneread.com. Right, which is your website. And then how did you get the name for Run- One Read? One is Read it- is kind of a code name for Quetzalcoatl. Mm-hmm. So that, and could you tell everybody about, um, you know, Quetzalcoatl? Uh, Quetzalcoatl is one of the, you know, the creator gods in the uh, Aztec pantheon was also a god of the Maya called Kukulkan. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's an interesting god, um, kind of like uh, Toth, Egyptian Toth, you know, where you have like, mm. it's a god of knowledge and learning. Mm-hmm. And there's this idea that in Mexico that Quetzalcoatl was a ruler and a very benign ruler, and but committed a sexual sin, you know, mm. and uh, you know, forced, uh, you know, chose to go into exile and said he, uh, he was going to return at some point. And the Aztecs thought that Cortez might have been Quetzalcoatl returning. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then, OK, so we'll, we'll get into that 
shortly, but and this is the June July 2019 Mountain Astrology. You have a wonderful article on this. But but first, would you say this God exhibits trickster-like tendencies? No. No. Okay. Because sometimes, yeah. Okay. Because sometimes the the gods that sort of cause disruption, sometimes like Hermes or Toth, like they can, I believe they can cause. There's some trickery that happens. Yeah, that, that might That's, be more like Tezcatlipoca. Okay. Tech god, yeah. Okay. Okay. So, talk, you know, there's this one. I recommend this, and it really. I was like, oh, this is a great article. But okay, so Cortez and Montezuma. So they, wow. So they, through their omens, they thought that Cortez was the return of this god. Yeah, because Quetzal, the legend was Quetzalcoatl left heading into the sea on a raft and was going to come back. Mm -hmm. Now, um, it was going to come back in the year one reed or one Akatl. And it, the year that Cortez showed up was that year. Mm. So wow. that, was, that was one clue. And there were a bunch of other ones. Mm-hmm. And, and Cortez actually had a, a woman who uh, had um, uh, known some uh, earlier Spanish uh, sailors that were marooned in the Yucatan and learned Spanish. So he had a translator and he found out all the all the stuff about what the myths were and what people believed. And so Cortez never he kind of played it, you know, like uh, like a poker player. You know, mm. if she asked, was he Quetzalcoatl? He'd say, uh, you know, maybe, maybe not. What's the name of it? Doña Marina. That was the yeah. name of this. Yeah. The, yeah. Wow. So then this, this brings up, I'm always so interested in, interested in this, whether it's a Greek tragedy or, you know, you put the prophecy out there and then it fulfills itself. So you've also said that, you know, it, sadly, the culture was nipped in the bud <laughs> as far as its astrological system. But then... You know that system was also what, in a way, precipitated its downfall. So how how can we view that? That there are these wonderful systems, you know, from all these different cultures that you've been talking about, but then at the same time, believing too much in these systems can lead to peril. Well, a, a system, the understanding of a system is limited by the level of the understanding that culture is capable of. You know, astrology was a lot more fatalistic 2000 years ago because society was like that. Mm-hmm. It was a much tougher world. You know, people were dying left and right. Right. You know, right. it's a very different world. Right. You know, today, it's it, today we have a lot more uh, emphasis on free will and awareness and consciousness. It's it's mm-hmm. and so you interpret it differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things you talk about, too, in the article is that. You know the the sort of the um the culture being caught up, you know in the in the in these omens and it was at the time you know of course because of the the nature of their worldview. But Cortez was pretty realistic and ruthless. Like there was no sugarcoating it. No, you don't get this sense. I mean, except maybe the idea of like God, gold, and glory. There was no oh, I'm going to be moved by the heavens. Like he was, you know, and you relate to this it, in my reading of the article to this uh, Saturn-Pluto conjunction we just exactly experienced in January, that he, there was this Saturn and Pluto sort of reality and ruthlessness and power. Could you talk a little bit about that? Like the the, the deep contrast between, you know, Cortez, uh, the culture, and then, um, you know, what was happening in the heavens, at, you know, just basically with the Saturn-Pluto conjunction. Yeah, well, the last time we had a Saturn-Pluto conjunction in Capricorn was 
in the early uh, 16th century. And the two events that I think, or, or two of the bigger events that are associated with it was the Reformation, mm. where Martin Luther, um, who was a super Scorpio, stood mm-hmm. up to the Catholic Church mm-hmm. and created a big problem. Mm-hmm. You know, we're still having problems. The Protestant sects can't agree with e- each other, you know. They, mm-hmm. And uh, and then Cortez, who was a pragmatic, you know, uh, mercenary, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, you know, basically looking for gold mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, really had no sensitivity to anything that was going on and, um, you know, plowed ahead. It's uh, Saturn Pluto. is There's a lot of reality with it. Mm-hmm. Now there's a lot of reality and some people uh, don't buy into it and, um, you know, they might get screwed. OK, so this is another. Right. So, you know, some of the other historical things, I mean, I think back to. You know, so there were these deep sort of things that, you know, could really fall. But then there were other, you know, you think of, I mean, I guess it was a little bit prior, but the printing press and, you know, the Renaissance, all the, so there was a flourishing of a lot of things that was happening as well. Mm, yeah, there were. Um, but something like the Reformation and the conquest of Mexico are outstanding events. Right. They're, they're, um, and they involve, uh, you know, it's a game change. They're game changers and they involve territorial, territorial change. Mm. So, I get, yeah, like land and power, power, power yeah. shifts. Yeah. yeah, power shifts. So you, you wouldn't put well, it's interesting because we all, the, the other thing we have coming up is the Saturn uh, Jupiter conjunction in Aquarius, which is I think the first time it's been in an air sign in a long, long time. So, well, you know, there was the, one in. Um, uh, 1980, I think it was. Oh, okay. Oh, right. And, and I think, um, okay. Right. So, you, so, you know, talking about this, so we have some of these similar, and you, you end the article with, um, you know, relating it to our current crisis with, uh, you know, global warming so that we, you know, needing to sort of get real about what's happening. Yeah, please. Let's do that. <laughs> So it's kind of, you know, I, I think of this Saturn-Pluto conjunction as, you know, the get real conjunction. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there's, um, you watch what's going on in the world. The conjunction happened. We got the coronavirus, impeachment, f- fires in Australia. You know, these are all, you know, pretty serious events. And, and um, you know, they are char- they're characterized by a, a lot of um, denial you know, in the face of reality. Right. This, yeah. So I, I want to, I don't want to harp on this too much, but it just, it, okay. So you're talking about like the actual Saturn Pluto conjunction, that, that being really related to kind of like land and conquest and Pluto being power. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so wrapping up, we, we've been going on, um, uh, do you have anything else you wanted to talk about or any activities you have going on and, you know, you'd like to share with people and, um, you can definitely go to oneread.com, which is your website. Um, anything else you wanted to talk about? Well, uh, yeah, I'm in the process of, uh, finishing up a book I started a long time ago. Um, it's called the astronomy and nature and mm. it, it covers a lot, a lot of the stuff we're talking about today. And I'm, I'm trying to get that wrapped up. I, I finished another 
or a revise to one of my older books, uh, yet last year, the year before, called Astrological Chart Calculations. Mm. And uh, that's, um, you know, I, I guess I originally started, uh, put out a version about 20 years ago, but this I filled it up. And it relates uh, astrology to the development and history of trigonometry. And I mm. talk about four, four different ways to calculate a chart and all the astronomy and time business behind it, houses and all that. So mm-hmm. glad I got that out. So I have those those two, um, and um, you know I'm just I'm, I'm retiring now. You know I'm, I'm doing some readings, but not very many. Mm-hmm. And I'm playing music in a few bands, playing rock and roll. You said that's a little bit of a return, a recapitulation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I unfortunately I had a very bad accident 12 years ago, so I don't do any hiking or skiing anymore. Oh no! <laughs> and and hiking has been such a huge part of your life. Yeah, so. I did a lot. You know, I spent a lot of my life walking around in the woods. Mm-hmm. Well, that yeah, that's a so that must inform your worldview and how you do astrology, right? I don't know that it does so much. Okay. I think it was good for my body. And it was uh, very good for my mind. It was a kind of a mental health activity. Mm-hmm. And I found the whole thing fascinating because you're out in nature and you see things. And, uh, you know, the geology part of me, you know, would get, you know, a good workout and, uh, you know, bird observations, you know, animals, um, all sorts of, uh, of things going on in the woods. And it just takes you away from the rest of the world. I was never a person to bring in a phone into the woods. I didn't mm. like that, you know. <laughs> right, right. All right, well, thank you so much, Bruce. So we should uh, sign off. This is Dan Beck from the okay. Star Love Podcast. And remember, thank you, if you Dan. Lo- yeah, and remember, if you love the stars, they'll love you back. <laughs> oh, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> thank you for being with us for the inaugural season of the Star Love Podcast. We've been lucky to feature some of the brightest luminaries in the astrological, spiritual, and creative world. Look out for some stellar guests next season, including Rebecca Gordon, Janet Booth, Terry McKinnell, Amelia Earhart, Basil Fearington, Tara Catherine Collins, and more. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts, and if you're interested in sponsoring a future podcast or episode of the Star Love Podcast, email intermakeupbusinessmanagerjames at james at intermakeup.net. To support the continued production of the Star Love Podcast, Go to the Leave a Tip, Make a Wish section at innermakeup.net and make a wish for yourself. Any contribution, small or large, helps.